Oh, well done. Sportastic. We love the sports. We're all about the sports. Let's let's say let's say Chelsea, Chelsea. Da, da, da. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's football. Is that football? I think it's football. Hello and welcome to the PR Hub podcast. My name is Adam Tuckwell, and I'm John Wilcox. Hey, folks, uh, welcome to a sportstastic edition of the pod. Do you like that? I quite like that. I really like sportstastic. Sportstastic. Uh, sportstastic edition of... I said it again. A sportstastic... I can't even say it. Now I'm going to give up and move on. Uh, edition of the podcast. We've definitely uh, got week. an episode name. Oh, we definitely do. Yeah, we really do. Sportstastic. Uh, with um, with not one, but two guests uh, this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, uh, a beautiful game, because everybody knows the beautiful game is rugby union but we are talking about um association football uh adam specifically uh the super league that was the super league that was but wasn't but was but wasn't so yes um so we were really keen to to talk to two people who have got a, a huge degree of experience within the world um, of sports communications to really get under the skin of uh, what it would have been like to to work for a football club and to experience what was happening as part of this uh, experience. So we were delighted to be joined by David Alexander and Dan Tunner, um, both of whom have got a huge amount of experience of, of sports PR and are, are passionate football fans too. And I think you'll agree, John, had an awful lot to say, but were very much aligned as to why the European Soccer League, Super League, was a terrible idea. So this episode is not sweary, but still incredibly insightful. So enjoy. David was here first, Daniel, so we're not picking favourites, but I mean, I was late as well. Um, so David, let's start with you. David, tell us a little bit about yourself and your, and your background and uh, and how you got into to comms. Yeah, hello, my name's David Alexander. Um, I went to school with a, uh, a young boy who was, a, was five years younger than me, but um, used to play football with my age group. And he single-handedly destroyed my dreams of wanting to become a footballer. Um, he was absolutely brilliant and uh, went on to play for England and uh, played for Chelsea. And he was the former manager of Chelsea, Frank Lampard. But the fact that he was five years younger than me reminded me and put me in my place that I was never going to make it as a professional footballer. So I decided that the next best thing was to write about football for a living. So I went on a, um, uh, a crusade to become a, a football journalist, which I did for over a decade, working for local papers and then the BBC, national papers. I worked in-house at a football club, worked for Reuters in Italy, which at one point was my dream job. And uh, then I got a little bit disillusioned with the world of newspapers because I was just being told by sports editors that I worked for at some of the more respectable board sheets as well as some of the less lubious red tops that I had to go and, and find hatchet jobs and do do uh, um, really unpleasant things to, to footballers who they just woke up in the morning and decided they didn't like. And I tended to say no to this because I, I was born with a conscience. And that uh, had an impact on my love for, for the world of journalism. So I moved into PR around 2003, worked for some of the, the biggest global agencies in, in um, sport, and, uh, and then set up my own agency, Calicus, in 2008. And we worked with a lot of 
B2B and uh, um, sports organisations, sports governance, sports charities and uh, and sports events. Fantastic. What a claim to fame to have played with Frank Lampard. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's I've heard of him. Yeah. It's not great though when you're when you're you're eighteen and he's twelve and he's running rings round you and there's him against three or four of, of you and your school team who all fancy yourselves and realise that actually he's just got something you'll never have. It was quite a it was quite an awakening. Better to have him on your side than being, you know, nutmegged by a 12-year-old, perhaps. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you, David. We'll come back and and talk about that in a bit more detail in in a moment. But over to you, Daniel. So give us a a brief rundown of of you and your background. Yeah, thanks again, guys, for for having us on this evening. Um, As I say, my my route into comms and working in sport was was slightly different to David's in in so far as I I didn't really know how I was going to get into sport, so... I just studied it and hoped that I'd end up in it somewhere along the line. Uh, so I kind of did a, did an undergraduate and an MA in, in sport, culture, media subjects. Was always interested in the me- media, but probably knew quite early on I wouldn't cut it as a journalist. Um, so so I, I kind of avoided that, but obviously had an interest for, for media generally and the ways it worked and, and um, yeah, and, and kind of found my way into PR through that really. And then I actually took a you know, a diversion in terms of my PR career started working for an insurance company, um, which which is an insurance company linked to sport in, in Alliance, who obviously have loads of big global sponsorships. But obviously, I didn't get to work on any of them. So that was unfortunate. Um, but after four years working in insurance, I could tell you, um, you know, it, it really, well, one, it gave me a really good grounding in comms and PR, right? Because it's a very dry subject area. And if you can make insurance interesting, um, which I tried to, uh, it, it's a good grounding for the rest of your career. Um, and it, also the company were fantastic in terms of learning and development opportunities. So I, I learned a hell of a lot in four years. Um, I then got the opportunity, you know, through through my proactivity, obviously I always wanted to jump over and work into sport. Um, had various offers at different stages. Um, you know, didn't intend to stay four years at Allianz, but um, it was just one of those, it, it kind of, yeah, the opportunities I got internally were very good and, and the opportunities I was offered by agencies were paid abysmally. Um, so so I just kind of stuck with it. And then eventually I got a kind of break in sport working at Sky Sports. So probably the best place you can, you can cut your teeth in sport in terms of, at the time, this is kind of 2012, you know, they had the rights to pretty much everything. Um, so I got to work across a whole manner of different sports and, and get to know, obviously, build a contacts book across uh, sports media. Um, and then from there, I was kind of poached to go and work at a pitch marketing group who just won a BT Sport account when BT Sport obviously launched in 2013. So I went over there and obviously wanted to kind of experience working in agency. Spent three years at Pitch, worked on BT with my kind of main client while I was there, but worked on a variety of other brands, um, Yahoo, um, the NBA, um, some some big clients. So that was a great experience. And then uh, about five years ago now, I had the opportunity to come and, and work in Paris for Eurosport um, at a really interesting time for them. Uh, they were just about to embark on their first uh, Olympic Games as a, as a broadcaster across Europe. So... Um, Spent three years with Eurosport and then for the last kind of 18 months, I've been consulting and doing my own freelance work. So working with a variety of different clients in the sports industry, um, from governing bodies to um, tech startups, um, professional sports clubs. So, yeah, quite a broad um, 
church in terms of the clients I work with currently. On our last episode of the pod, we interviewed a lady called Sam Brown and she did the the PR for Glastonbury and John got very excited because of the PR for Glastonbury and thought that was very exciting. Now, I'm really excited about doing PR for sport. I imagine sports PR is <coughs> exceptionally competitive in terms of the number of people that are looking to to get into it. What is it about sports PR that makes it such a such an exciting sector in which to operate and is it as glamorous on the inside as one might imagine on the outside maybe David could go could go first I've just been interviewing for a new member of staff and I told I told those that I got down to the shortlist that yes I have had some wonderful experiences I've traveled all around the world I've played football with some of my heroes I've done all sorts of very exciting things and met loads of people who um, have sporting excellence at the top of their CVs. But I think like any element of PR, you know, you are client handling, you might be dealing with the media if that's the area that you're involved with. You're dealing with a wide range of stakeholders and, and like any part of the PR mix, you know, there's a lot of desk work and a lot of less glamorous aspects to it. I think one of the attractions is that you know you're doing something that you um, you might love, uh, working in a in a sector that you'd be talking about all day anyway, and now you can do it for your job. I would say that there sometimes um, you know you you meet your heroes and you can be a little bit disappointed because however much you want to be uh, um, dispassionate and professional, you can still get a little bit starstruck at times if you meet someone whose uh, sporting achievements you've admired from afar in the past and then when you meet them and if you get them on a bad day it can can uh, taint your impression of them or even of their sport more generally and I've had a fair few of those but I think it's 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 the fact that you can can work in an industry where there's um, it, it transcends uh, society in in so many different ways one of my clients um, uh, and I don't I won't give too many plugs I promise but one of my clients is Laureus, who uh, whose founding patron was Nelson Mandela, and you may have heard the speech where he says that the inaugural Laureus Award sport has the power to change the world, and uh, that's that's certainly a mantra that I've lived by. You know, you you can do so many things through sport, not just at the highest um, elite level, but down at the grassroots level, you can change society, you can have an impact on people in so many different ways. Um, through sport and, and I'm very much inspired by the opportunities that, that I've had through sport to help make a difference a positive difference in society. So it's quite interesting David that you talk about interviewing new people for for the role within sports PR do you, do you think they they come to those interviews and they come and apply for the job with a with a realistic view of of what it's like then or is it is it all um, <coughs> based on on fancy land of what sports comms might be like? I certainly think that there's an element, particularly for younger applicants, that they think it's going to be hanging around with A-list celebrities all the time. And I will tell them that, you know, in the, with the clients that I have at the moment, I would probably do that two or three days a year, if that. And the rest of the time, you know, things are, are done directly with the clients rather than their talent, their ambassadors and such like. And therefore, if they think it's going to be all, all glamour and uh, and excitement, it certainly isn't. And that you know there is an element of, of public relations, which is the dominant element, certainly as far as my practice is concerned, that is 
about desk work, administration, research, measurement, um, and essentially media relations and, and um, strategizing and, and not hanging around on uh, 40 million pound yachts in Monaco with Caroline Wozniacki, although I have done that. Uh, so, um, you know, it's it's just about being realistic and, and and making that clear. I would also say that the number of CVs I get when I have advertised for jobs, and I've written about this on my own blog, and the number of applications I get that say, I really love sports, that's why I want this job. Um, even if they've had no experience in public relations whatsoever, um, it's, it's quite frightening, really. And... Uh, I think you have to have open eyes because if you think it's all going to be exciting and, um, you know, I mean, a lot of the A-list celebrities will, will treat you like minions because they've got so used to uh, to dealing with, with people who, who don't ever um, uh, push back at them and, and just basically nod their heads and do whatever they're told. And that can be a bit frustrating as well. Daniel, I want to come on to you and your experience of working in sports comms if we talk about if, if we go back to your time at a pitch or something like that for example you're working across a, a broad range of clients some of them were sporting and some of them some of them weren't um i was really fascinated by your your introduction to your time at, at allianz and doing doing in, in, in insurance insurance pr what do you how did how did you find that transition of then working and supporting multiple different clients when you moved from agency to, from in house to agency and how did you how did you adapt to working in different industries and was there something distinctly different about sports clients than perhaps more serious oh, that's a horrible thing to say but but more b two b b two b environments or b two b clients it's interesting because I think the transition for me from from Alliance to Sky Sports was very easy because it was obviously an in-house role um but my you know my knowledge of sport you know to david's point there obviously there's lots of people that are knowledgeable about sport um you know for, for, as a fan but you know there's a lot of people that take it beyond that even if they're not working in it they might read around the subject um and, and i was definitely one of those people that kind of already knew the kind of sports trade media contacts for example before I was working in it because it was it was my interest and my passion um so I I found that transition quite easy and and obviously it was just amazing to be working on these great sporting events and properties um and and I was able to just bring a sort of fresh enthusiasm you know to that to that team and and part of the reason they hired me because it was actually a six-month contract initially um and the guy who hired me I must give him a shout out um Chris Haynes who's former uh, director of comms for Sky Sports and Sky Sports News and then uh, latterly at the ECB, um, Team Sky. Uh, you know, he, he basically brought me in because I had a completely different skill set. Um, so he, he wanted to kind of have someone, as it was a short-term gig, um, that had a different viewpoint and actually I ended mm. up extending my stay there for 18 months. Um, so I think, you know, obviously I, I massively gained a hell of a lot of experience from it but I think obviously people learnt from me as well I think then the transition from Sky Sports to pitch that was that was really tricky you know I, I remember you know the first few months I was a proper fish out of water you know I, I just the whole concept of managing multiple clients and you know having to to respond 
quickly and um, be, you know, just being always on in a, in a different way. I mean, I'd always been someone who was working, you know, was always on my phone, you know, all hours and responsive. But I think when you're an agency, it's a different, different type of pressure. And, you know, you get pulled into new business pitches, creative sessions, you've got your client work, you've got, you know, there's always events and delivery um, that, that, that's there that you have to work around. So it's just, there's just so much more you have to deal with. Um, and, and you have to have that flexibility between, you know, you might be working on, on four clients at the same time, for example. Um, and that's just quite a big challenge when you're new to it to kind of manage your time and prioritise things. I'll let John speak in a minute, but I sort of get my questions out of the way first. <laughs> he, just, he just does his thing for the first uh, half. John, can you explain the offside rule to us? <laughs> Isn't it something about uh, the, the man who's getting the ball has it passed to him has got to be beh- uh, in front of the guy who is defending it mm, no. <laughs> do you know what that's not too bad that's not too bad actually john well, <laughs> john's john's more interested in in rugby than football but he's very aware of uh, the european super league so let's come or on soccer to- as we call it in wales soccer <laughs> football is rugby will you carry on <laughs> <laughs> we won't have a debate on that. We will talk about the European Super League. Um, before we get into this, um, gentlemen, it, you're clearly uh, big fans of, of football. Um, who, who do you support and uh, what was your initial take when you found out about their involvement in the ESL? David? I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm an Arsenal season ticket holder. I've worked. Oh, so your, your, your first expression was shock, was it? Uh, <laughs> um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't because I think Arsenal is still a big club, even though the the, the Premier League title hasn't come our way for, for, for way too many years. But um, I would still consider us to be... I, I think there are three big clubs in England. There are, and they all play in red, Liverpool, Man United and Arsenal. And all the others are just uh, new money and... Uh, um, Johnny come lately and, and, and don't really afford the, the same respect as, uh, as, the, as the heritage clubs, as I'd like to describe them. Um, but yeah, I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm a season ticket holder. Um, I used to work in-house at the club. Um, I, I think what's, what's been going on over the last few years at Arsenal has, has seen an erosion of what used to be their, uh, um, their, their traditions and their principles. They, they used to be known as the... Um, Bank of England club, um, not just because of their wealth, but because they had a certain aura of class and respectability about them. I'm not saying they always kept that on the field, but they certainly did off the field. And the, the marble halls at Highbury were respected throughout the game. But I think since new owners took, took over, that um, ambition and class has been eroded. Um, we can go into fan... Um, uh, frustration with with club ownership, I'm sure, but I think um, I wasn't surprised that they were included. I'd have been surprised if they hadn't been included in the the Super League project when it was um, first broken on the Sunday afternoon. But my first reaction was, "This is the end of football as we know it," because although they were claiming it was just going to be one element of the game taking over from the Champions League, I think everyone knew that it was. Uh, a money grab by uh, um, the, the rich and powerful who perhaps didn't have the best interests of the wider game or, or care about the fans at heart. And I was tremendously disappointed that Arsenal hadn't 
stood up and said, no, we're, we're, uh, we're not going to engage in this. But given the ownership and how distant they've been from the fans over the last decade or so, I don't think it was much of a surprise. David, as you've got a, a, a huge amount of experience from sports journalism, um, if, you, if you put your sports journalist hat back on and reflect on how the media responded to the news on that Sunday... Were were you surprised that it was all completely aligned in terms of being being anti what was happening, or was it not, or or was it all anti what was happening? Was were people sort of you know pitching their flags to the mast and saying what they thought and what they what they saw when it was first being announced and unveiled or leaked or previewed or, or whatever it was on that Sunday? I th- I think um, I think we're taking a slight step back. I think when the news broke on the Sunday afternoon. I don't think that the Super League was uh, anticipating that the story was going to come out at that point. But I think um, from what I've, I've heard and read and listened to since, there were some um, suspicions that were being aroused by the head of UEFA, Alexander Seferin, regarding his former friend, Andrea Agnelli, who's the chairman at Juventus. And that's why the story broke, because Agnelli had turned his phone off. So rather than just coming out with the lie that he'd been persisting with, he, he basically just ghosted his friend who's um, godfather to his one of his children, so they're that close. And that was a point where the rumours started to take hold and some of the UK papers found out about it. I think the outrage, I'm not surprised about the outrage. Um, and I think that, that you, the whole of my social media feeds, Twitter, was was absolutely inundated with with outrage and fury about what's going on. I haven't seen anyone saying this is a good idea. I think that, um, you know, we have seen in football over the last few years that um, developments have taken place, both with with regard to the Champions League and to do with technology, the the implementation of VAR, which everyone thought, well, this is going to get rid of some of the injustices that leave us fuming. But what it's done is it's taken away some of the spectacle and sanitise the game to such a degree that it loses its a little bit of its enjoyment and unpredictability. So I think that this was perhaps uh, a natural consequence of that, particularly given the fact that we've had a pandemic, we've had a lockdown, and the clubs in Spain particularly, but also in Italy, are both badly managed and have negotiated terrible television deals, which have uh, made it... um, virtually impossible to compete on a consistent basis with the Premier League. And I think also, you know, you could argue that why are all these multi-billionaires from overseas, three from America, um, one from from Russia, one from the Middle East, uh, why, um, why are they coming in and, and buying major um, football clubs in the UK where they're having, or in England, where they have to invest quite a significant amount of money if they don't see that there is an end game where they can get their money back, whether that's through huge increased revenues or uh, by increasing the value of those clubs to such a point that they can make a handsome dollar by by selling them in due course. So I don't think there was any, um, I don't think I was surprised at all with the way that the media reacted because I think ultimately most football journalists are football fans and most football fans were against this because it was taking away the soul of the game. Um, you know, we've already seen with with the television companies that the um, they don't always pay as much um, heed to the 
convenience or logistics for fans. So you'll have a game at eight o'clock at night taking place where the last train leaves back to London or wherever uh, half an hour into the second half. So everyone has to leave if they want to get back in time. So certainly those fans who go and, and uh, attend games home and away have been forgotten a little bit lately. And, and there are huge global uh, fan bases, certainly, that have been um, uh, are now seen as the cash cows for those clubs. But, you know, we've only we've seen within lockdown quite how much the uh, the fans in the stadium matter, and, uh, and and they are the the heart and soul of these clubs. And and so it's it's no surprise that there was universal outrage. And um, how did how did Arsenal respond? Where were they in the 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 trickle down uh, withdrawal from the European Super League? How 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 did so? I think when, was... on the on, on the Tuesday when the um, there were rumours that clubs were starting to waver, it was um, Manchester City and Chelsea who were the first two to depart, and then after that came Arsenal. It was followed very swiftly by the other other English clubs. Arsenal, um, to their to their credit, were the first club to um, put an actual apology within their statement, although that can be uh, slightly um, uh, um, pointed by the fact that it was signed by the board, and yet really the board is just the owners. So it would have been better if the owner um, himself, Stan Kroenke, had actually put his name to the uh, to, to the letter and the apology if he didn't go that far. Since then, the uh, um, uh, the, the owner's son has met with Arsenal supporters groups. He's done uh, Q&As. So they're starting to engage with the fans in a way that they hadn't before. But I think there's a very, very long road before they regain the trust or confidence of those that would like to see them gone. Uh, Daniel, I wonder whether you turned off when David said that the three core clubs were Red, Charlton, Arsenal and Manchester United and anyone else is just uh, fake new boys. Is that Daniel, who do, who, who, who do you support within the European Super League? <laughs> so I, I support Liverpool and um, yeah, I have to say I was obviously very disappointed when I when I saw that they were part of the, uh, the cartel. Um, to be honest, I mean, you know, you, you always like to think that your team has a, a sort of moral high ground, um, but I think you lose a lot of credibility when, when obviously you sign up for something that's um, that's so divisive. Um, you know, I think it's been an interesting one for Liverpool in terms of their ownership and their relationship with the club. I mean, when they came in, obviously they were very much kind of saviors from the previous American uh, regime, which ended really badly. Um, they did a lot of good things from a from a PR comms perspective. Um, more latterly, obviously, the, the success has, has helped in terms of their reputation, but they've still not been, you know, not, they've still made mistakes. Um, there was an issue with season ticket prices uh, where there was a, a demonstration by fans and a walkout of the stadium. They tried to trademark Liverpool um, after winning the Champions League. Um, and, and, and often, you know, they've apologised for those things and, and been forgiven. Uh, but obviously this is, is a far bigger issue and, you know, there's going to be a lot of fans that will, won't simply won't forget or forgive in this instance. Um, and, and it's going to sort of tarnish their legacy with the club, which obviously, you know, having finally you know reached the Holy Grail and, and won the league title after 30 years, you know, that they, they were an absolute um, kind of zenith in terms of their standing. 
and uh, and obviously that's yeah massively damaged now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And what what about your experience of, of of hearing the news? How did how did it reach you? And what was your initial initial perception? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really intrigued with it all. Obviously, look, these things have been talked about for a long time. This isn't a new you know a Europe, the, the prospect of a European Super League is not a new thing. It's been muted for 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 years, um, and there's a lot of people, you know you know. To, to sort of counter David's point, there are there are people out there who do think this is a necessary uh, development, you know, a kind of closed league of, of just the big clubs. Um, you know, they're not they're also football fans, but I think they come at it from a position of the business of sport as well. And I think that's the interesting point here. And certainly for me, working in the sports industry, yes, I'm a football fan, but I'm also someone who understands you know the sports business and you know where we're going in terms of fandom um engagement with fans how how they consume content how you know increasingly uh fans of a younger age are, are being drawn into gaming and um and different you know, different cultural uh, pursuits so you know I, I see it with both sides i mean from the fan perspective of course you know i think it was um it was a it was, a, it was a shock in the way it came out, but it, it wasn't a surprise. Um, I, I did, you know, the way it all played out in terms of, you know, the, the timing and how it was done and, and the agency that, that was used, you know, I did actually think, first and foremost, is this purely a lobbying play? Is this a power struggle and a power play with UEFA, um, who obviously were, were about to announce changes to the Champions League format? Um, obviously, it, it became apparent you know the the kind of the, the sheer scale of it when all the clubs came out and, and were supportive and you pretty quickly realized okay that this they're serious about this um but yeah it, it was just a very confusing confusing way for this to come out and um you know I, I think obviously ultimately it proved that the kind of lack of strategy around how to handle this an announcement of this magnitude um you know, it, it was completely the undoing of, of all those involved. So one of the things that really struck me about the whole episode was the fact that the players apparently didn't know. Um, and so the players were coming out and being asked about it and challenged about it. And the response was, you know, well, we, we've, we, we know as much as you know. We've, we've heard about this in, in the same way that you've heard. It seems to be something that was driven at ownership level, um, which didn't trickle down or wasn't communicated to, to, to the wider team. And from a comms perspective, I was then able to draw parallels from that to, 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 to regular businesses where you have, you know, an owner, potentially a slightly maverick owner, who, who goes and, and does things. We often talk on this podcast with senior comms practitioners who are really keen and, and massive advocates of comms being right at the top table, of having a say, of being part of the decision-making process and clearly working through the, the, the communications piece. Before we talk about um, what it would have been like for a, for a comms practitioner within these football clubs dealing with this issue. Um, can either of you tell us a little bit about the comms set up within football clubs? So so what what is the process? What do their comms people do? Where do they sit? What is their day-to-day role? Is anyone able to sort of shed some light on that for people who, who won't be familiar with the with the setup? David? Yeah, I can. Yeah. So, so going back to, to the late 90s when I... Um, was working in-house for uh, Arsenal. They had um, two press officers, um, and now they have huge media teams. So I think they get divided into multiple different sections. So 
if I take Arsenal, for instance, they've got a team who do the, the women's team, um, uh, a set of press officers, including a head press officer who does the men's team. They'll have um, those that work with the community and the, the uh, Arsenal Foundation. Uh, and then probably the most senior person at Arsenal in terms of communication is Mark Ganella, who's head of corporate communications. Um, and he would definitely, I, I think, basic, based on all the uh, reports that I've seen, he would have been within that very small inner circle of people who were aware of what was going on. That doesn't mean, um, as as we all know as, as comms practitioners, that it doesn't matter how much we say don't do it, uh, if uh, if the owners and the, the chief executives or presidents or what have you have said we're doing this, then you are slightly powerless and your job is to try and help them to communicate things as well as possible. Um, I think, you know, I w I've already mentioned that, that Arsenal had, had uh, a statement that came out very quickly apologising for their role in the, uh, in, in the attempted breakaway. Liverpool did a video the next morning with, with their owner um, where he took complete ownership for it. So I think these are the areas where the, this most senior communications uh, executives and directors would have been playing their part thinking, well, there's nothing we can do about this. We've just got to try and uh, put everything in place from a crisis communications standpoint so that if it all does go belly up or even if it doesn't and we have the, the, uh, the, the protests which have happened anyway, then we know how we're best going to deal with it. Um, but I think you, you mentioned something else there about the agency that was involved, and, and I wanted to talk about that. I think um, there's nothing more frustrating uh, for someone who works in, in sports communications than to see an agency with seemingly very little sports communications experience being given such important and high-profile uh, opportunities. And that's not to say I would have gone near the Super League with a barge pole, but nevertheless, I think the, uh, the, the, the mindset was probably, we're going to go ahead with this. It's all legally binding, which the um, Madrid president still says is the case. Um, you know, he's fiddling around while, while Rome burns, as it were. And, um, but they were clearly brought in to do a lobbying job, which they, even that, they didn't do particularly well because I think everything came out a little bit earlier than was planned. Um, and I think just even going back to, to what we were saying before about the timing of everything, the reason why I think that the organisers of the Super League were caught on the hop here was that it took them until 11 o'clock at night to come out with a statement when they gave eight or nine hours for everyone to discuss the, the pros and, and mostly cons of going ahead with this. So the airwaves were full of outrage and rancour and opposition. And the only reason I can see that they left it so late to come out with a statement was because between the 12 of them, well, very powerful, very um, dominant egos, coming out with something which was agreed upon probably took more time than they were expecting it to take because they weren't expecting to bring it out when they did. Uh, you know, if I had been advising them, and as I say, I, I hasten to add, I wouldn't have done, but if I had been um, advising them, I'd have ensured that an executive from every single one of the clubs was given a playbook and given a, the uh, messaging that they needed to communicate so that they could have had the direct communication with their fans on the, the morning after the night before, as it were. Uh, that didn't happen. And I think that when you see a 
elements like the Manchester City website and the Liverpool website with the uh, one of the owners of Manchester United, one of the Glazers, being quoted in a press release on their website um, celebrating something that they are all going to be in together. I mean, how not to win friends and influence people in one fell swoop? You know, you couldn't um, conceive of a more disastrous, ill-conceived idea than to have arch rivals quoted on your own website. And I think from there, everything else was playing catch-up. And, you know, it was, was doomed, even though there were times when I thought it was just a fait accompli. That's, uh, there's, that's fascinating. There's so much in there. Of course, we, we should refer the, to them as LFC rather than Liverpool, because I think that's how the it's all spelled, isn't it? Um, Daniel, I'm, 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 I'm curious about the, the, the comms mix here. So um, there's, there's a car crash going on. The, the club that you work for is involved in this story, which you may or may not have known about. Um, you then have various different stakeholders who you're trying to to communicate to, whether that's via the, the media or, or, or directly. But we're not just talking about customers. We're not talking about advocates. We're talking about hugely loyal, passionate fans. Um, how do you think comms practitioners who work within football clubs or, or, or sports clubs more generally strike the balance between speaking directly to their fans through their owned media and trying to sway perception with uh, with 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 traditional press and, and journalism and, uh, and PR what are your what are your takes on that yeah it's a really interesting point and of course you know we have to remember that I think when it comes to to owned media um, it's not necessarily comms that kind of owns that within clubs right it will be content marketing um, departments so actually you know that that's an interesting dichotomy in itself um, but you know I, I think to go back I think the, the we kind of touched on it but the whole problem here is is the way this has been um, communicated from the get-go and, and the lack of um, transparency between the group that were obviously hatching this plan and the people that work for their clubs um, and, and I think you know that in itself you, you see that in the way it was done because I think any good comms people, which obviously there are many at these clubs, would have advised very, very differently in how this was all, you know, how this was announced. So, you know, I've no doubt that there was very little uh, knowledge uh, as to what was going on. Um, and, and obviously, they then had to pick up the pieces when the announcement was made. And, and obviously, it, yeah, it. it kind of started to fall apart so it's just a really really unfortunate position for for those comms people and teams to be in um and you know as I say different advice would have obviously you know dictated a very different approach here and, and i think that you know that's the main problem with the whole proposition is you know it's i hate to be someone who um you know sticks the knife into it from a marketing perspective but you know th this is more a marketing failure that comms has has, has compounded you know, where, where was the market research? Where's the targeting, the positioning? Where's the kind of understanding of, of what you're trying to say about, you know, the current product that's there and, and how you position against that? And I think, you know, if any of that kind of marketing insight and strategy had been done, then you would have seen a completely different approach to how this this product was brought to market. Um, and, and, you know, it was kind of the argument is that there's, there's very little comms could have done to turn this around because... You know, it was just lacking all those basic, basic elements. And, and look, I'm someone who, 
you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate for marketing. I'm, I'm, and I'm, you know, comms and marketing is is dovetails. You know, it has to dovetail for it to be effective within most organisations. Um, but you can just clearly see where where there's a real, um, you know, fall down on, on the ESL's part in terms of how they brought this brought this to market. If I can, if I can jump in there as well, I think I think one of the one of the challenges here, which Daniel's mentioned, which I understand why they they had the strategy they did was that every day at every training ground things go on which get leaked by players. If you think these guys, particularly in the Premier League, are getting paid ridiculous amounts of money, and even if they uh, were found out to have leaked something, that it's not going to cost them a huge amount because even if they were suspended by their clubs, they're still going to find a, a way to to get out of that club and get into another club at some point in the future. So I don't think that the owners quite justifiably would have thought that they could have trusted the players. But nevertheless, I think one of the other missteps that that occurred during, during this abortive campaign was the fact that the owners had not told the, the, the managers and coaches of their clubs what was going on until late in the day. Now, certainly we know from, from the past that Jurgen Klopp was very against any concept of a, of a Super League, and he may well have been quite outspoken about it. But nevertheless, the, the, the managers of all six of those clubs got put up in front of the media ahead of football matches or after football matches, where this was the only thing that was going to be talked about. And none of them had been briefed or given any of that information that could perhaps give them the opportunity to, to soften some of the outrage that was going on. I think just also, um, you know, going back to, to Arsenal, the um, Arsenal have, uh, the Arsenal Supporters Club have been engaging with both the owners of Arsenal and uh, Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, who is at the moment making a very public play to try and take the club over. And uh, even in the last couple of days, the, the Arsenal Supporters Trust has been talking about the fact that they've been having those meetings just to, to provide some transparency towards the uh, the wider fan base and their wider membership, and and that's a great thing. But I think when you've got something quite as as big as the Super League and with the, the whole project shrouded in in secrecy before such time as it was probably ready to be unveiled, I think if if uh, if focus groups had been uh, uh, created, which I, I agree with Daniel, it would have been absolutely the right thing to do, get some um, you know, very small fan forums or such like in order to try and identify one way or another um, what the sentiment was and what would be needed to be done to, to bring those fans around. But I still think that it would have had to have been very, very obscurely framed in order to make sure that fans didn't say, hang on, you asked some really strange questions about um, you know, where we see the future of football and, and breakaways and what have you. However, it had been couched, and I'm sure it would have been a bit more sophisticated than that, but however it had been couched, it would uh, potentially have, have let the cat out of the bag. And um, whilst there had always been some some mumblings about the Super League, I think whilst there, there perhaps was some expectation that with the new format for the Champions League being a... a, a, a preemptor to, to a, some sort of development from the, the major clubs. I think a lot of people were expecting this to come from the um, European Clubs Association, that all the, the dirty dozen were a part of, rather than just 12 large marketing 
brands coming together and excluding everyone else. It does seem uh, that there was a massive failure on due diligence from the very top. Uh, it's as somebody who doesn't, you know, I, I don't follow football, so uh, some of this I, I'm a bit lost at, uh, lost uh, in sort of woods. I I'm mixing metaphors and, and buggering up metaphors at left, right, and centre there. But you know, I do. I, I, I'm not familiar with some of the sort of intricacies of. Of of, um, of of football, of course I know football isn't all that sort of stuff, I know the Champions League and all that sort of, but it does seem like from the very top there was a lack of due diligence um, amongst um, the um, the executive chairs, whether that was Joel Glazer or uh, the chair from AC Milan or anybody else like that, there does seem to be a lack of due diligence there, there seems to have been a lack of due diligence um, in, 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 in the agency involved um, uh, who was sort of tasked with with, with communicating as well? Um, there seems to have been a, a, a lack of uh, due diligence amongst um, internal comms, and we talk about internal comms on the pod uh, from time to time. And you know, you said about players, you know, leak stuff all the time. Well, there's a reason why if you work for a company that is floated in the stock exchange, you find out as it happens, or or you know. Or, or at the last possible second um, before before it goes public, because these things are 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 are, are tight illegal frameworks and uh, all, all that sort of stuff. Um, it does seem like it's been a complete communication shambles from from top to bottom, inside and out, inverted, back to front, and everything. I don't think this could have got any worse, could it? Yeah, it, it it's going to go down as one of the all time great case studies of of what not to do. Um, you know, to just as you say, from from kind of top to bottom, um, there's no, there's literally nothing positive you can say about the communications around around this whole thing. You know, whether that's from, you know, as I say we, we talked about the kind of lack of, of due diligence and research and what have you, but then to actually just the way the announcement was made, um, you know, that the 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 press release itself, the kind of facelessness of it the lack of authenticity and credibility um you know i think the yeah the actual announcement was actually completely superficial if you, if you read the sort of release you know that there's no you know there's a bold claim about how the esl was going to save football but there's no tangible proof points um the details as to how they're gonna they were going to do that um you know suffice and, and there was a throwaway line around you know including uh, the women's game in this as well you know as, as a sort of afterthought um you know that I, I i've heard that there was you know apparently there were kind of you know one obviously this was a very serious proposition like from from someone who's quite close to it um you know there, there were 70 page proposal documents there were obviously the legal framework that was there um you know so it's it's kind of incredible really to think that the comms execution was you know let it down so badly but you know i think one of the say one someone close to it you know he 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 kind of said to me that look it's it's um ultimately it's it's down to arrogance of the owners um you know and and their belief that they could kind of do this and and you know kind of it it would be it would be fine they could announce it no problem um we'll, we'll get what we want um and obviously you know that pride comes before a fall. Do we think that a lot of it is because football owners uh, don't know who the true stakeholders of the game are? Do they th- they look at it as as just football as a business, therefore stakeholders are their shareholders, 
Um, have they forgotten that the, the stakeholders are are football fans, the billions of football fans around the around the world, and you know many of those, regardless of whether they're in Kuala Lumpur or uh, you know Rio de Janeiro, will support Liverpool, Manchester United, AC Milan, regardless of whether they were born in you know any of the sort of uh, home cities. It, ultimately, it's the stakeholders who revolted in this, right? The fans. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think they misjudged. Obviously, well, clearly misjudged the, the backlash on this. Um, in particular, but um, you know, I, I think this is the obviously the, the the change in ownership over a period of time. Um, certainly in, amongst the Premier League clubs, um, there is a, a different approach to how these clubs are run. They're, they're no longer the kind of you know uh, local businessman done good who wants to give back to the community and um, invest in his local team. You know, the, these are businesses, but. And business, you know, typically business owners or people with a with a success story in in business that then come into football and and they're doing it as an investment. You know, Liverpool's owners are a great example. They bought a depreciated asset for less than three hundred million um, pounds in twenty twelve, and it's now worth almost three billion. You know, I mean, there's not many many assets you can get a return like that um, at all anywhere. So you know, from that perspective. Their business acumen is, is proved very sound, but of course, you know that they, they I say they've had bumps in the road, and I think ultimately, you know, I think part of it is obviously the pressure to not be left behind. Um, and and Liverpool, you know, I've been very proud of the way Liverpool have kind of um, achieved their success. Like, of course, they've spent money like all clubs do on transfer fees, but as you know, their net spend is is reasonable compared to a lot of other clubs. Um, and and you know great manager great set of players and they've kind of achieved their success um, and there are other ways of doing it and there are clubs with deeper pockets and ultimately this is what this all boils down to is that other clubs are being left behind and it's almost the you know the the, the sort of teams signing up for this it was a, a fear of missing out right it was proper FOMO of what happens if this happens and we're not part of it we're you know we're doomed we've got no chance i think i think also um fans fans fall into into two specific groups you've got those who who follow the teams who go to matches whether that's just home season ticket holders or those that go home and away and and those that that live internationally as i mentioned earlier the um the broadcasters seem to factor in the the asian audiences and the international audiences far more nowadays than they do factor in the convenience and the transport logistics that affect the the traveling away fans and i think perhaps there's an element in all of this that the uh, the lockdown and, and the empty stadia has uh, exposed to to the owners the fact that football has been going on and perhaps give, particularly given a lot of them are based overseas and aren't as close to the the pulse of the game as as perhaps some of us are over here they probably came up with the the presumption, well, you know, actually, how much do we need those local fans? A lot of them will go anyway because they're so incredibly loyal and they live and breathe. And those that don't turn up will soon replace them because there's long waiting lists for their tickets. And actually, we can get far, far more money if we're able to sell the broadcast rights to major major um, broadcast platforms. Um, including including uh, maybe less um, traditional ones rather than just the main CNN and, and Fox and CBS and 
and the BBC and such like, but maybe some of those that work more on a uh, um, on a on a mobile basis that that fans can can start to consume the game in different ways. I think that's probably played a big part. I think also interesting today um, this week there's been the, the fan engagement index has come out, which I thought was fascinating because um, none of the, the six clubs from England that are involved with the Super League are anywhere near. Um, the the top and they're all they're all fairly low down. I think um, I think one of them is in the 40s or 50s, and and the rest of them are, are down in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and, and it just shows that that uh, the the importance of engaging with fans, whether you're a large club or a small club, hasn't disappeared just because the game has gone a little bit more global and and uh, that internationalisation has occurred. But Arsenal, in particular, actually. Um, I don't know if this is the same for Liverpool or the other clubs, but there's a lot of um, quite high-profile um, blogs and podcasts that are based overseas that actually set some of the tone for even the domestic fans. And a lot of the uh, American fan commentators and bloggers have been saying the very reason that we have uh, decided to start supporting a team playing soccer, football, is because we don't like the Americanization model of sport. We don't like the closed leagues where actually people come and go because if you're not going to make the playoffs halfway through the season, there's no reason to watch again until the beginning of the next season or unless your team is going to tank and, and get the first draft in the pick for the next season. And and that lack of competitiveness and lack of jeopardy is part of the reason why a lot of fans, certainly in America, are, are so uh, passionate about the English game or the, the, the European game of of football, as it were. So, so you know, if the American owners really have got this wrong, if they think that that they can just do what they like to uh, um, to, to tread over their fans, as we saw last weekend at Old Trafford, you know, the biggest game in English football has been uh, postponed because fans took it upon themselves to voice their outrage both the Super League and the way they're that Manchester United is being run. And 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 on that, uh, obviously, I mean, you know, it's. Look, looking at how Manchester United, as we're as we're talking about um, their their role and Joe Glazier's role as a, as, a, as a coach uh, of of the Super League, um, you, I've just been looking through their Twitter um, timeline for the last week or so, or rather their Twitter timeline of the last week for the last five minutes. Or so, um, you know, twenty five million followers. They uh, announced on Twitter two days after it was first announced that they were going to be withdrawing from the Super League. Edward Wood, um, the chairman, executive chairman, um, you know, is going to step down by the end of this year. Um, then they do a next day. They do uh, they link to Joe Glazier's statement to uh, the, the fans, and that's it. It's like they evidently want to draw a line under the sand. And for my, I, you know, clearly that has not done anything to dissuade fans. That uh, the owners are truly sort of sitting up and taking notice, as 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 you mentioned, the Man United Liverpool uh, match being postponed uh, on, on this weekend. What more, from a comms perspective, can clubs, their communications teams, do um, to sort of um, help draw that line in the sand? What 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 else can they do? They're still in crisis mode here. I think actually this is this has opened the Pandora's box that was slowly closing because. You know, whether you're talking about the Arsenal owners or the Manchester United owners particularly, 
there's been a lot of suspicion and antipathy towards their owners for a considerable amount of time. They've been tolerated. And the, super, the um, evolution of the Super League has actually just brought back to the fore the fact that these are owners that, that the fans of these clubs don't actually want running their clubs because they don't feel they understand um, either the fan experience or the way the, the club is run. I think it was very interesting today, Sky ran some coverage. They tracked down Avram Glazer, one of the Glazer um, brothers, and uh, they, they said to him, look, what have you got to say to the to the Manchester United fans? You know, there's been uproar. You know, the game was cancelled at the weekend. What do, you, what do you have to say? And he just ignored them and, and got in his car and drove off. Now, it may well be that he didn't feel prepared or that actually he's not particularly articulate, but it comes across as um, uh, an extension of the perception that he is just um, aloof, arrogant, thinks that the fans are below him and doesn't feel it's his place as one of the board directors to say anything about what's uh, what's gone on. It's been left to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer today to come out and say, look, you know, we, we encourage the fans to voice their opinions and if they want to protest, they can do it, but please do it um, peacefully. Um, Chelsea have, have, have announced that they're going to put fan representatives onto their board um, so that they will have more of a say in, in what goes on. Now, there's a, there's, um, a concept of the golden share that, that is um, used by a number of, of clubs where, where fans are allowed to get involved in some of the major decisions that don't involve the playing side of the, of the club. So they can stop the club basically from changing its colours or its badge or um, relocating in the franchise way that you get in the um, United States. And, and there is an argument for that. Interestingly, in the last couple of weeks, I spoke to a director of a German football club, and Germany has been seen as the uh, um, the, the the model that, that all clubs should follow because they have this 50 plus one uh, system where the fans are ultimately the, the deciding voice. And although they have executives who run them very um, very well. The, uh, the fans have, have feel that they, they have a great ownership and the tickets are also particularly low. But this director said, well, actually, uh, that's a bit of an illusion because the only club that competes at a high level consistently is Bayern Munich. They, they're the ones that get to the finals or get to the quarterfinals or semifinals of the Champions League. They're the ones who dominate the league. And actually, there have been situations, certainly at the club that he's at, that they're fighting against relegation despite the fact they spent a huge amount of money because of some of the decisions that have been made by um, by a committee involving the fans rather than the football experts. So it's a really, a really tricky one to, to, to get that balance between making sure that the fans feel they have some ownership and some say in the way that their club is being run and shaped and actually being aware of the fact that the business acumen and the commercial side of sport does require some levels of expertise that might mean making difficult decisions that not all fans feel is palatable. Got um, a really, really good point. It's really interesting. We could we could talk about this all night. <laughs> I think this is the challenge. Um, Dan, I've got two, uh, two quick questions for you. So you uh, mentioned earlier that this ESL project was a, a, a case study in how not to do comms. Um, so off, off the back of that, do you think the way in which this has been handled has changed or empowered the role of the comms practitioner within football clubs and secondly what can uh, non-sports comms practitioners learn 
from um, the way in which the clubs have responded and communicated with their audience through, uh, you know, direct channels or social posts or, or statements and that sort. Of thing. Yeah. So in, in the first point, I think uh, yes and no. I mean, look, I, I think that from my experience, um, senior comms practitioners within clubs do have that. Um, you know, are close to the decision making. I think this is a really, you know, a kind of one-off example of where it's an unprecedented situation. I think that the size and the magnitude of what was being uh, put on the table, um, and and for a number of reasons David mentioned earlier, that that kind of loop was very very tight. Um, so, you know, as I, say, I think if comms practitioners had at clubs had been closer to it, then things would have played out very differently. Um, I think in terms of you know what can then be learned, I think it's it's a really tough task because obviously some clubs have, have done the full-on apology, like Liverpool have done their video, other clubs have, have put pieces on their websites, for example. But you can clearly tell that kind of hands are tied in in certain instances as well, you know, and and that's a massive massive challenge. I mean, you know, I think probably all of us at some point in our careers will have faced that um, internal challenge of trying to put your point across of we need to do this but the business tells you no um and you know i I think all you can really say in that instance is you have to keep pushing for what's what's the best for the business and uh, the organization i think um you know certainly as as the sort of key learnings you know you know classic crisis comms tells you that you need to be open transparent you need to communicate and you know that that's not happening enough at the moment um, but I'm not sure we're going to see that change in, in the particular examples of these clubs because I just feel that, you know, the ownership won't, there's only so far they'll go, you know. And if you take Manchester United as an example, so it's really interesting for me personally, I, I wrote a dissertation on the Glazers' takeover in 2005. I went to um, Old Trafford and saw the demonstrations back then. You know, this isn't a new, what happened on Saturday isn't a new thing for, for their fans. Okay, it's it's been there for 15 years. There's been, you know, um, lots of noise around the Glazers' ownership. Of course, like it only sort of resurfaces at, at moments like this. But there are they, their fan groups have been talking about this for 15 years. The, the owners don't care. <laughs> Quite frankly, they don't care. They they care about um, their investment. Um, and you know, I think the only way that the change will happen is if they leave the club and they sell the club. Um, but again, you know, these are kind of hard-nosed business people, and until they feel that there's a, the return on their investment that they're comfortable with, that's not going to happen. So, um, you know, that that is the challenge for comms people within the clubs is they have to work within that constant, um, you know, that that yeah, the, the constant pressure that comes from above. Um, but certainly from a learning perspective, yeah, it's it's the you know, you have to revert to your classic kind of issues and crisis management in terms of how you respond to these things. And, you know, fortunately in, in other businesses where, you know, if, if you're a big, big brand um, where, you know, you're going to see considerable financial pain if, if you don't respond in the right way, um, then that certainly drives the comms around it. The, the, the issue for the, obviously for the comms people in the clubs um, is there's no there's no real punishment here you know there's there's the kind of lack obviously fans are, are outraged but there's nothing you know, there's not a financial penalty on the table at the moment there's not points deductions there's no 
pressure to immediately kind of turn around their their brand perception because you know there's there's not something hitting the bottom line um, and until it makes a difference on the bottom line that's when you might see a change in approach that's brilliant david anything to anything to add to to that that answer well i think you know um just to reiterate some of what daniel said you're dealing with people at these clubs now who aren't family owners who have taken over the clubs which used to be the case with arsenal for instance it used to be the hillwood family that inherited the the club and and uh, and passed it down from generation to generation although they brought in new investors you've got um ultra successful uh, billionaires and, and billionaires tend to get to where they want to get by potentially not always uh, caring about the consequences of their actions if they if it takes them to their end game and then if you take 12 of them who are um, competing against each other and then bringing them together and trying to, to get them all to collaborate it's like herding cats on a um, who are, have all taken to speed uh, it would be virtually impossible for for any agency, I think, to to have uh, have got everything quite as coordinated as as would have been ideal in the timescales that that the uh, the breaking news allowed. Um, but I think it's it's important for um, we talk about this as and Daniel mentioned that, that this is probably a case study in in how not to do sports communications. I think that in itself will be empowering because whether you're working in-house or consulting to sports organisations in the future, this will very much be a case study in in how things can go wrong. And the executives of these clubs have lost their positions at the Premier League. They resigned from the uh, um, European Clubs Association and are losing their other positions of power and influence. So nothing good has come of this uh, uh, so far. So you know, you, as communications consultants, we can we can say to our clients, well, look, if this is the road you want to go down, look at what happened with the Super League. This is a very high-profile, fairly recent example where actually, instead of gaining, you lost a considerable amount of of goodwill and. Uh, um, and the influence when, when actually if you've done things a little bit differently, the uh, outcome may have also been, been very different. So it's been a little bit um, sad and depressing in our conversation tonight. David, why is sports comms the best possible comms in the whole wide world? <laughs> uh, for someone who lives and breathes sport, and particularly football, sorry, John, um, I... Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, t- to be able to, to work in a in in a world that that other people just dream of being near, you know, as I say, I, as an Arsenal fan, I had a kickabout with with Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, and Robert Perez. You know, I've I've got to know some of the the, the um, people at the highest level of the game, and and as I say, personally, um, you know, I love being involved in in the world of sport and seeing how it can inspire, engage, excite and transform society, you know, because whilst this is a, a very negative chapter um, in, the, in the world of sport and in the world of football, you know, I also see on a, on a daily basis through my clients how sport is doing positive things. We've only got to look at, we've been talking about Man, um, uh, Manchester United, we've only got to look at what Marcus Rashford has done with his platform over the last year or 18 months to see how the, uh, the power and influence of people who are at the top of their game can make a difference to society. You know, hungry children are now getting meals 
uh, government policy is being changed, uh, you know, society can be changed for the better through sport and through sports people using their influence in a positive way. And like all elements of society, there are missteps, there are mistakes, there are heroes and villains. But, uh, but I love the fact that, that sport has that opportunity to, uh, um, to, to cross boundaries. You know, you can go anywhere in the world and, and if you talk about sport, you know, people will just talk to you about it forever and ever. And you, you can build great communities, great uh, friendships do something that you might not otherwise have a, any any common ground the last thing we want to say david is for people who are keen to find out more about you uh, where can they find you and contact you on social media so my my social media handle is also my company name which is calacus c-a-l-a-c-u-s and calacus.com we we write a blog on a on a weekly basis about everything going on in sport uh, on it. every Monday, we do something called Hit and Miss, where we talk about the uh, a high-profile, um, successful, transformative sports communications activity, and also someone who's done something a little bit uh, misguided or, or more serious. Um, and but, but I'm also very active on Twitter, so if anyone wants to contact me or, or have any any sort of um, seeking of advice, then, then I'm happy to, to contact be contacted that way. Thank you for that, David. And Dan, you can be found uh, on Twitter and on LinkedIn with at Dan Tunner. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to have you both on the podcast and, uh, and hopefully we'll hear from you again soon in the future. Thanks to David Alexander and Dan Tunner for joining us on the pod uh, to talk all things football, all things uh, Super League uh, this week. Uh, as ever, you can follow Adam myself on Twitter at Adam Tuckwell and at John Wilcox underscore, or indeed this podcast at PR Hub. You can email us at the PR Hub podcast at gmail.com or visit the website at the PR Hub podcast.com. Uh, until next time, take care.